Hi, everybody. Welcome to Fire the Canon. This is usually the podcast where we read the books in the Western canon and decide if they belong or not. But this is a little bit of an extension of our Christmas mystery special. So if you were here with us last week, we just kind of worked our way through the plot of Hercule Poirot's Christmas. And this week, we have a special guest with us, which I guess let's introduce ourselves first and then the guest. So I'm your host, Rachel. I'm your other host, Jackie. I'm the producer, Theo. And? And? I am John Allison, the guest. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) We've been on a run recently of guests introducing themselves right away. It's been so smooth. Yeah. I think probably my response time was quite poor. Actually, you probably want to edit that down so I sound like sharp and with it. (laughs) Yeah. No, I'll edit in an extra minute of silence. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, we're waiting, John. (laughs) I mean, this is a a mystery episode after all, so we do need to build the suspense. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah. So, okay. Usually I'm the one who gets the guests and the way that I choose guests is if I like them, then I ask them to come on the podcast. <laughs> and if they are very kind, they will deign to say yes. <laughs> True. I, I like to pick people that I think will be interesting. And it's always, I'm sure I've said this for everyone we've had on before, but it's always someone whose work I'm a big fan of. So John Allison, actually, I think of all of our guests, I have been a fan of yours for the longest because he wrote a webcomic that I read in high school. (laughs) I think all the other guests, I started reading their stuff in college or more recently. Do you want to talk a little bit about what you're working on right now? Oh, sure. Well, I'm a comic artist and writer, and I've written any number of series at this point. (laughs) Um, At the moment, I'm working on a series called Steeple that's about um, essentially two churches, the Church of England and the Church of Satan, and the, the like. priests in both become best friends, effectively. Forbidden love. Forbi- it's forbidden love. It's, it's definitely forbidden friendship, you know, but they just <laughs> yeah. get along straight away, you know. It's about getting on in times where we're not really meant to get on with people we disagree with. And then I worked on series like Giant Days, which was a kind of college series with the artists Lisa Trayman and Max Sarin. And I worked on a mystery series called Bad Machinery. It's kind of an all-ages mystery series that ran for 10 volumes and has now concluded. Wow. It's great. I would recommend basically any of them. If anyone wants a more specific recommendation, please DM me on Instagram or whatever. We'll give you our contact information later, but I I like them all. So have you always been a fan of mystery? Is that why you decided to write one as well? Or was that just intriguing to you for some other reason? Oh, well, I think I can get into this on with the specific topic of today's podcast, because I read basically all the Agatha Christie, Miss Marple and Poirot books when I was a young teenager, and I'd completely forgotten this. It was only when I went to buy this one that I was like, oh yeah, I've read that one, I've read that one. And if I hadn't read them, I'd watch TV dramatizations of them. So I think I know the entire Christie canon when reminded, because I'm 45 and I've started to forget things as information is pushed out of my brain by newer, more useless information. So yeah, that it's just in my writing DNA, really. And I didn't really realise how much of my writing DNA was Agatha Christie's DNA. I'm a bit of a chimera. <laughs> if you start reading a Poirot, for example, do you immediately remember, oh, this was the murderer? Or is it just a little bit familiar to you as you go through it's it? character names that I remember. In fact, there were names in the one we've read. Mm-hmm. But the second that I saw them, 
I could say them out loud and I had said them many times before because some of them, I say, some of them I'd watched on TV and just the sort of pronunciations of international names and things like that, which would sometimes be a little bit colourful, the name would come to me straight away, yeah. Yeah, you're talking about Pilar, I suppose. Pilar Estravados, yeah. That name, yeah. I think I've tried to call characters Pilar Estravados four or five times over the last 20 years. And, and there's definitely a Pilar in my work, though maybe not an Estravados, but the name, the second I saw it, it was like, oh yeah, of course, that's the name that comes after Pilar, it's Estravados. <laughs> so sometimes you might accidentally like plagiarize a little bit by like taking one of the character names, not even remembering it. You'll just think, yeah, that came from me originally. I, invariably, yeah, I can't help it now. There's so much, it, like my, my creativity, I always think of it like a sausage and like everything's been sort of chopped up into <laughs> tiny little bits and you don't know where all the various bits of it came from, yeah. Well, it's not fair because she wrote so many dozens of books, she's got all the names, you know, she could have oh, just left them for the rest of it. Yeah, it's like land grab, it's like the people who bought like the first internet names and got all the good ones, like sort of, you know, like cookies.com and things like that, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. I think uh, if you accidentally copy Agatha Christie, though, in terms of names, you just say it's an homage. You're not copying it. But of course, homage, It's just yeah. a nod to yes. one of the greats. <laughs> it is unfortunate because we wanted our website URL to be cookies.com, but it was taken. It's um, not fair, is it? Yeah. Why did, why did cookies.com go so soon? We'll never get it back now. We were so close to getting podcast.com. We were like... 10 years off. <laughs> yeah, I know. If you'd just been there, yeah, just about 3,000 days earlier, you could so easily have had it. Yeah. <laughs> when I reached out to you, I said we were going to do a Sherlock Holmes and a Poirot, and you were very, it seemed very interested in the Poirot. Mm -hmm. Do you prefer him, or do you think uh, there's just more to talk about? There's so much that's been said about Sherlock Holmes. Poirot, I think he's one of my favorite fictional characters. I think there's something very indelible about him. He's almost like a peanuts drawing, you know. He's so simple with the moustache and the hair. Mm -hmm. You know him straight away. You know who it is. Someone could draw it in three lines in Pictionary and you'd know exactly who it was. I And there's something about me as a cartoonist that really enjoys characters in fiction who are almost a cartoon character with their sort of visual presentation, even if they're a written character. Mm -hmm. Even when he just talks about his moustache, you know exactly what they're talking about straight away. You know, it's, <laughs> it's great mental <laughs> painting that Christie does. That's one of the real, real good things about Agatha Christie. I think. I imagine the mustache is walrus-like. Well, you can see what, uh, what different adaptations have done, but I think that's part of the reason people get so up in arms about like the Kenneth Branagh Poirot, for example, is mm. it's so easy to know what he's supposed to look like. And then Kenneth Branagh doesn't look like that. Well, there's, one, there's a version they show on British television quite often, which is a Peter Ustinov, um, Murder on the Orient Express, which is, like, I guess, from the 80s. Mm -hmm. And Peter Ustinov was a big actor, but he does not look anything like any Poirot that you've ever <laughs> conceived of. He's kind of like a sort of quite burly, grey-haired man. His moustache is fully walrus-like. And you're like, no way. This, this is not my Poirot at all. Yeah. <laughs> So you think it is important that he matches the representation he's been given in the books visually? I think so. But also, in the end, though, I have been coloured by television. And because there was the David Suchet version that ran for, I don't know, 20 years or something like that, he, he's defined the character visually in my head, at least. And so it's like anything. It's like if you, I'm used to the Agatha Christie books with the kind of Art Deco lettering on it. Mm. And if I see a newer version, I look at it and go, oh, that's not right. And of course, it's no less right or wrong than any other, because the versions I read weren't the original versions. But, you know, you just have a, a set template of things that you see when you're a, a teenager and you, any variation on that seems slightly wrong. Were you able to find that version when you bought it or 
did you have to settle for one of the ones with more modern lettering? I had to settle with one with slightly more modern lettering. Yeah, the, the version that I had, I would have liked to have had the same version again. I think if I dug around at my parents' house, I could probably have found the original <laughs> version. But uh, no, I had to have a more modern, like HarperCollins kind of 2013 version. But I embrace this. You know, you've got to be flexible in life. You can't you can't hove to the things that you remember. You've got to allow change into the world. Except when it comes to Lord of the Rings casting, because I will never accept a, a Gandalf who is not Ian McKellen. No. I don't want any changes whatsoever. He can go from gray to white. That's it. Only change I'll accept. It's the only Gandalf change you like. Yeah. Although it's got to be a CGI McKellen at all points in the future now. They've got to motion capture him as much as they can and just deep fake him onto any future act. Yes. <laughs> I yeah. think, uh, yeah, Jackie, we've talked pretty frequently about how traumatized she is by the upcoming Amazon Lord of the Rings adaptation. Oh, yeah. That, that's gonna, that's <laughs> yeah, gonna it's, not... it's pre-traumatic stress disorder is what it is. Really. <laughs> <laughs> we saw there was an article that was like, we've heard the Amazon version is going to be very adult with mature themes. And I sent that to Jackie and she sent in all caps like, no! <laughs> all those, like all those mature themes that are in the original text that were just waiting, the subtext, the mature subtext text that we're waiting to be drawn out of it yeah it was mature already (laughs) it's the ultimate struggle between good and evil how more mature can you get well they said they're gonna put nudity in it and i'm afraid (laughs) i'm very afraid i don't i don't know why it's already so popular like they don't need to draw people in with these like game of thrones kind of style of filming it's it's so popular but whatever i i'm very much (laughs) well basically basically it's just every scene where they don't specifically in the book where he didn't specifically describe the clothing people were wearing they're just going to be nude yeah so tom (laughs) bombadil is going to be very clothed well uh, to bring it full circle we don't need a sexy poirot right oh no but i mean it could happen at any time now (laughs) the the modern adaptations they definitely make them a little bit ruder than they were and definitely much ruder than the books which were all in our school library which is where i read most of them Mm -hmm. i'm gonna look up poirot cosplay cosplay. he's quite old in some of the books so like his libido has got to be dipping (laughs) he's not gonna be a great lover in these books it can't happen he's also like he's very polite and i would even say that he's quite charming but he's not suave no no he's belgian he's not french don't be crazy (laughs) he's persnickety i would say (laughs) that's what i was telling jackie is he's definitely one of my favorite detectives i love poirot and i i really love colombo and there's a couple others that I like a lot. I like him because he has a lot of character flaws, but they're all very charming. Like his particularity and his vanity and that sort of thing. Yeah, they're what make him good. Yeah, he's got to be somewhat fallible. You know, he can't come in like a computer. It's the same. It's just like Columbo. You know, Columbo isn't well-dressed. He's he's wearing that dirty old raincoat. His car's broken. He's got a dog in it all the time, just hanging out of the window. No one's ever seen his wife. Despite all these problems, he's still the greatest detective, certainly in Los Angeles, but possibly the world, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Jackie and Theo, have you watched any Columbo episodes? No. Nope. Really? Kind of surprised. I feel like your parents would enjoy that. I don't know if I should take it as a compliment or an insult when every time Rachel is shocked that we haven't seen something or read something. I mean, it was popular (laughs) when you guys were, you know, living at home with your parents. So I know you don't watch much television now, but I thought at least maybe it would have been on the TV while you were there and you could have walked by. Nah. Oh, you've got to dig into the Columbo cinematic universe. Once you get in there, (laughs) it's very rich. You know, once you've watched all the episodes of Columbo, you can learn about the TV show about his wife who's never seen on 
screen who had a show that ran briefly, played by Captain Janeway from Star Trek Voyager and uh, Red from Orange is the New Black. (laughs) I think people were mad about that, too, because they were saying she's way too young to be Columbo's wife and doesn't match his descriptions. (laughs) In no way does she match his description, no. But I love to watch the opening titles of it that are on YouTube and show it to people because I've never seen an episode of it. Nobody's ever seen an episode of it, I don't think. (laughs) It's one of TV's great follies. Like, by halfway through the series, I believe it's been renamed as, like, the Kate Mysteries and they've taken any reference to Columbo out of it altogether. (laughs) (laughs) Did she ever have the dog with her, do you know? Yeah, I was going to ask if the dog ever got its own spin-off. In the opening titles, she does, like, throw away all Columbo's cigars and I think the dog is alluded to, certainly. So maybe the dog (laughs) is what unites the two characters in, you know, but apparently nothing else does to the extent that she can forget all about Columbo within whatever, eight weeks. Has Columbo died in that series? Like, she's throwing away all the cigars, she's never mentioning him again? No, because there were many episodes of Columbo made after the brief dalliance with the Mrs. Columbo mysteries. So he's definitely still alive, or at least, you know, he's on the astral plane and then he returns, a little like a sort of Marvel character. (laughs) I think I also really like detectives where they have comfortable personal lives. So what is his name? The Guido Brunetti series set it's set in Venice in the 1980s. Inspector Montalbano, is that it? No, this is a more recent series. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's actually, who's the writer of this? I'm going to Google it real quick. Her name is Donna Leon. She's an American who lived in Venice for a while, but I think the series was originally published in the UK, so they've made it to the US after a while. Mm. But he's this Italian guy with uh, a good marriage and two kids, and he's always going out and dealing with these horrible corruption crimes. And then he goes home and his wife is making some kind of really good pasta, and they'll drink their glasses of wine on the balcony, and he'll read like old Latin histories and whatever. So I just, and you know, Poirot's pretty comfortable in his personal life too. So I think I really like that. I don't like the detectives where their whole life is in turmoil. So your um, mystery series is about, is it high school sleuths? They're kids, right? Yeah, they're kids. So they in the first book, they are 11, I think, because they start kind of like, okay. the grades are slightly different in the UK. So like you start effectively big school that you then stay at for five or seven years, depending on what level of study you continue to, sort of 11 till 18, I guess. And so okay. my idea was that I'd kind of do three cases per school year until they were 18. I didn't quite get up to 18. I thought <laughs> the series was not the same series. When you're writing about 18-year-olds, it is not the same book right. as when you're writing about 11-year-olds. So mm-hmm. I had to kind of curtail things because readers of the first book could not really... Some of the younger readers... Like there were readers who were sort of 7 and 8, and there were readers who were 70, but the younger readers could not really have passed the issues they would have faced as 17- and 18-year-olds. So I kind of truncated it at 15. It felt like I'd gone far enough. I feel like all of your characters do feel pretty realistic. Like you didn't try to force them to do the same thing over and over again without taking into account the way that all the relationships change. So like Mm. the connections between the kids by the time the series is over, those are totally different as well. Yeah, that's it. I'm I'm sort of obsessed with with character stuff and everything else is kind of set dressing like any sort of genre thing is kind of like a comfortable bed that I can just do all my character work on top of which is kind of an inversion of how much genre fiction works I think we can kind of go through the book I did have a quick question which is John there have been Mm -hmm. multiple adaptations of Murder on the Orient Express which if the audience has only heard of one Poirot mystery it's probably that one Mm -hmm. how many of those have you seen and where would you rank them 
I've obviously I've seen the PTU Snoff one, and I object to the existence of PTU Snoff as Poirot. He is not a good Poirot. It was not <laughs> a bad film, but and it is on all the time. All of them are on TV at different times. There's a David Suchet one. He's my favourite Poirot. I like that one very much. There is a Kenneth Branagh one, I think, as well. A Ken, a modern Ken Branagh one, if that's what I'm yes. thinking of. Yeah, that's from a mo- couple of years ago, I think. From a couple of years ago, and I think they made it a bit racy and in a way that I object to, as we have discussed. They <laughs> sexed it up a little, and I still think that's poor taste with Agatha Christie. It's got to be a situation where the whole family can sit down with some good old-fashioned murder, because obviously murder <laughs> is much nicer than any kind of human sexuality, shall we say. So I'm going to go Suchet is the <laughs> tops, then Yusinov, because it's a good film, even though he doesn't look like Pyro. He's a, he's a great actor, a truly great actor. And then um, and then Branner, I just don't agree with him as Poirot at all. Too flashy. <laughs> Have you seen uh, the one from the 70s? Oh, who is Poirot in that? Poirot is, I'm pulling it up. Let's see. Albert Finney. Finney. Finney does look like Poirot, but I cannot remember <laughs> any of those Albert Finney Poirots in detail anymore, unfortunately. I mean, there are, I think there are a couple of them, maybe. No, I don't remember what it's like. I know that that one is one that people think is really good. I haven't seen it yeah. myself. Well, he's a good actor. Kenneth Branagh is a, a great actor in a lot of the things I've seen him in, but he just doesn't fit Poirot. No, he doesn't. <laughs> he's too youthful. He's too good looking. It doesn't really, it's a different vibe. Yeah, whereas Albert Finney's skinny. <laughs> Are there any in which Poirot kind of uses, like everybody knows what he looks like and he must be aware of that. Does he ever have an episode or something where he just shaves his mustache off and then he can go incognito <laughs> and people don't know who he is? Because I feel yeah. like you should use that. Yes, the last Poirot case. The last one? Yeah, Curtin Poirot's last case, he, um, He's really old and they basically think he's dying. But his moustache, he can't grow it anymore. He's got a fake moustache on. And at some point he takes off his sort of disguise, what he's basically been using to make himself look like Poirot in very old age because his vanity persists and he's still like got this kind of very dyed looking moustache. In order to move incognito and kind of solve the case prior to his own death, he takes the moustache off and kind of amends his appearance. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really good. I remember reading that as a kid because I kind of saved it. I didn't want to see Poirot die. Mm. And that last Poirot book is great. I'm sorry I've now spoiled it for any readers. No, were, no. haven't read they it. They know but... we spoil things. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so yes, that is the answer to your question. I'm, I'm quite impressed I, I had that. Wow, time. I guess correct. Look, I'm a regular Agatha Christie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, get your magnifying glass now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's do a quick setup summary for people who didn't listen to the first one. Do you want to do that, Jackie? Yeah. So if you if you didn't listen to our first episode, we did discuss the plot of Hercule Poirot's Christmas and we told you who the murderer was and how they did it. And Theo completely missed that part and then was astonished a second <laughs> time when we <laughs> mentioned who did it. So what happens is basically there's um, a bunch of people that all get together in an English manor house for Christmas. There's an old man named Simeon Lee and he's been basically a rascal his whole life and he's kind of rude to every He has too many sons, like way too many. Too many sons. Um, So his sons and their wives all come home and then a couple of other characters come into the house. He's murdered. Turns out it was the police officer who was working on the case. And it turns out that he was one of Mr. Lee's illegitimate sons and he was mad about that and a couple of other things. And so he accomplished this murder in a very, very convoluted way, which involved... (laughs) 
filling the old man, which no one noticed or heard or, or anything like that. It was pretty easy to do. He then snuck out, closed the door behind him, and he had uh, arranged a huge pile of furniture with like some cord around it. And he had a some type of like whoopee cushion like balloon that was stopped up with a cork and that had a cord around it. And he had all this fake animal blood or not, not fake animal, real blood, real animal, animal blood, <laughs> fake human blood. <laughs> and he poured it all over the floor, kept the body warm by the fire, went out of the house, crept into the hedges, pulled on his cords, balloon pops, ah, a terrible noise. All the furniture falls down. Everybody runs up and sees the man has just been murdered, when in fact he'd been murdered sometime before, and the room was locked from the inside. So how did it get done? So that's that. The only reason I'm mentioning all of that, of course, you know, the summary is important, but we talked about <laughs> someone doing 12 thirteenths of a murder or something. Like, I could just imagine, like, one person pulls one cord, one person pulls the other cord, one person pulls the blood, one person, <laughs> you know, puts him by the fire. It's just, there's right. so many parts here. It was so convoluted. <laughs> I thought of that as a weakness. Um, probably, John, you will not agree, but I thought it was so convoluted uh, that I couldn't possibly have guessed how it would happen. And I like to be able to guess how it happens. What What are your thoughts on that? I agree with you. It's, it is convoluted. Not all that business <laughs> with the little peg and the bit of sponge bag yes. <laughs> attached to it that Pilar picks up. I really get the sense that that was something where Agatha Christie had thought of it, not really come up with a convincing answer for what that peg might be, and then come up with this whole screaming balloon thing at the end. <laughs> okay, so those the dying pig balloon then is not an English thing that you all know and love. Oh, every Christmas we get out the screaming pig balloon. We all, you know, like before we open our presents on Christmas morning. And it sounds like a soul in hell, but it's a fun toy. A soul in hell. No, I'd never okay. heard of this when I was a kid. I've never heard of it. Now, obviously, you know, like we all know the whoopee cushion, the um, yeah. because that's that's an international <laughs> device for mirth and merriment. And that's why I'm calling it that because they're calling it a balloon. But to modern listeners, this thing is not anything like a balloon. It, it's it's a whoopee cushion. <laughs> yeah, but instead of making one. a hilarious fart noise, it has like a horrendous scream. And I don't know <laughs> what parent would let their child buy this. It was a very different time. You know, <laughs> entertainment was was very thin on the ground, and you had to really get your kicks where you could. None of the people in the house ever had one of those things because they had no idea what it was. No, exactly. P but Pilar knew. <laughs> Maybe they had them in Spain. She noticed like, oh, it's balloon. But yeah, it's just little kids. They didn't have video games. So they would just make their balloons scream at each other. Yeah. Just running around outside. <laughs> it was like Call of Duty, you know, all the horrors of war, but, you know, in the comfort of your own home. <laughs> And so the older people in those times would get together and say, oh, yeah, these kids are no good these days. They got these whoopee cushions and they're making screams. And <laughs> Back in my day, we had dying pig balloons. <laughs> I mean, it's just the, the death of morality among the youth. It's the, it's the fault of the balloons. <laughs> See, I was wondering because to me, I wasn't a fan of the solution because it's impossible to guess. But for me, it wasn't because of how convoluted it was. It was because of this. It all hinged on this item that I had never heard of in my life. So I was wondering <laughs> if it's just Americans don't know it or if it's a thing from the 50s. No. And at the time, would people have been like, oh, a dying pig, of course. <laughs> I wasn't sure if the whole, the way it happened was a bit of a MacGuffin. Like you were meant to have guessed it by the repeated use of the phrase high bridged nose. Because people <laughs> keep coming into that house with a high bridged nose. Like Harry Lee's got a high bridged nose. The South African emigre, he's got a high bridged nose. 
the policeman who did it, he's got a high bridge nose. And, it, and, and apparently no one has that if you're not blood related. It's impossible <laughs> to have a high bridge nose. Simeon Lee was, his high bridge nose was definitely his, you know, his gift to all his male children from what I could work out. <laughs> so like, I think that was a bit of a clue. Mm, yeah. Again, I'm not absolutely sure that they say it about everybody or if I haven't just imagined the repeated use of that word. No, they did. They did. And to the degree that I'm starting to imagine his eyes being in a very bizarre location on his face. Like it, it's got to the be... The nose is like up here. He's like a Picasso <laughs> painting. <laughs> it's like, aha, I can tell that this is his son because of the way his nose is on his forehead and his eyes are on his cheeks. Exactly. exactly <laughs> that yeah. classic Lee family look. Pilar is so beautiful beautiful because she doesn't have that characteristic <laughs> with her symmetrical face she dazzles everybody yeah <laughs> yeah we also talked a little bit about um the descriptions of pilar and how funny they were to us so make no mistake this is the creamiest gal you've ever seen in your life <laughs> this is a walking bowl of cream of wheat <laughs> she is very creamy that's true yeah <laughs> now when you see people and you're trying to describe them in your in your work i mean have be honest how many times have you described someone as creamy well when, whenever i'm writing a script for a story and i have occasionally introduced Spanish characters influenced I believe now in retrospect by Pilar Estravados <laughs> the first thing I do is like just head to like the refrigerated dairy section of your local supermarket stick your head in there if there's any heavy cream that's pretty much the look we're going for here yeah you know they say sir what are you doing in here and you say research <laughs> exactly just look at some cream and like you'll get that Estravados look definitely. it's just like the old Spanish stereotypes are so weird because I feel like English people are famously pale and creamy. That's so right. just them remarking on this Mediterranean woman being like, oh, her skin, it's its so white and creamy and she's so exotic because her hair is black. Like, surely there are English people with black hair. Uh, wrong. Just like this Spanish person, a woman who, look, if you're in the U.S., the distance from England to Spain is like Nothing. Washington, D.C. to North Carolina. It's like a state and a half away. <laughs> and they yeah. don't have a distinct look. Well, maybe, I mean, in this time period, though, people in England may have been pale, but they were all covered in chimney soot, I assume. All of <laughs> we, them. We were, we were pretty pale and concerned. I'll be honest with you. When I was a student, I and then I worked in the city of Manchester, which is a kind of pale northern city. And there were a lot of Spanish students there who had come over for a sort of year of study. And they looked like they were from another planet. It, they were so good looking. So, to be honest with you, they were definitely a beautiful people apart. So, I can understand this whole cream obsession is sort of, I think it's just meant to express the fact that they look like they're well rather than ill. <laughs> It's just funny because she literally escaped a civil war. She's like, I almost got exploded two days ago. It's glowing. It must be all the violence. Yeah, it's funny because like there's loads, all this set dressing of like the Spanish civil war. It's like, oh yeah, I know about that now. I understand what that is. And and yeah, yeah, at the same time, but issues with her peaches and cream complexion. It's a little bit strange. Mm -hmm. I did say I think that it, I thought it might have been a stereotype that Spaniards were just violent because of how Stephen Farr reacts to Pilar on the train when he first meets her. Oh, she yeah. says, oh yes, I would cut my enemy's throat in a second. And he was like, you're a bloodthirsty girl or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But he that... likes it. He's just like, ooh, she's creamy and violent. She certainly doesn't fit with any Spanish person I've ever met. They were generally very, just very pleasant and open-minded. Yeah. I don't remember the yeah. murder. That wasn't really part of it. Well, they were pleasant to you, but I mean, when you get that on their bad side. Oh, that's true. I, yeah. I, I won't cross that line. I don't dare now. I don't, not knowing what I know now. That cream goes sour. <laughs> it can curdle. That's true. Were the Spanish students you saw 
would you call them creamy? Because I tend to think of people who live further south as <laughs> having got more sun. <laughs> weren't creamy. No, they they looked like people from Spain. They had not, you know, the sun had touched their faces and they had perhaps <laughs> slightly darker hair than people from England, but they're not that much darker because, are, like you say, there are a lot of dark-haired people in England. They just looked like they'd had a better diet than us and right. seen more sun than us, yeah. Sure, mm-hmm. more olive oil than butter something like that. Yes, they just lived a better life than us and would probably live longer. That was just all I could work out, really. <laughs> yeah, like those good-looking Spanish students you saw, they were retirees on a on a trip. <laughs> oh, don't say yeah. that. Oh, no. It's worse than I thought. <laughs> Ooh, that is pretty funny. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I do have to say, having been to England and Spain in quick succession, I, I much prefer Spanish food. Well, you've clearly not sampled our national fare. Look, when I was a Indian food? Indian food, exactly. Our (laughs) national dish imported from one of the many countries we conquered, (laughs) that we colonised. I'm sure that's not a problem. Yeah, we just, we stole, I wouldn't say that we pillaged these countries, but we pillaged these countries for their culture and their food. Yeah, sorry about that. (laughs) No, curry curry is great. I have to say the mushy peas, not a big fan. Well, it's effectively a sort of a homogenous, almost tasteless mass, isn't it? So delicious, (laughs) definitely. It's It's sort of a, it's halfway between a vegetable and a sauce, but it doesn't really know which one it is. It's an insult to peas because, you know, we can grow a pea in this country that you can actually taste. Oh, but. yeah. You have great produce. I follow a lot of old English gardeners on Twitter. <laughs> it's because we're a Protestant country and, you know, everything was about table manners and it wasn't really about enjoying yourself. In fact, enjoying yourself was, strictly speaking, considered to be extraneous to, you know, the British <laughs> dining experience, probably until the 1970s. And then, you know, the serpent entered the garden of, you know, serpent of flavour, as we like to think (laughs) of it as. Um, And things have much improved, certainly from my childhood. But still, we're, we're still getting there, you know, we're not there yet. So at the time you'd come back from a dinner and they would say like, oh, how polite was everyone? But now they ask like, was it good? What did you eat? Exactly. Yeah, (laughs) there was definitely no great expectation that what you'd eaten would be worthy of conversation afterwards, even if you'd been out for a sit down meal at a fine restaurant. It was more about manners, the kind of snooty waiters being made to feel like you were out of place rather than any kind of good living. Oh, no. It's like, ooh, how out of place did you feel? Tell me all about it. <laughs> exactly. You you know, like, because French cuisine was considered a higher form of cuisine. So restaurants we were sort of quasi-French, they'd hire French staff, and the French staff would be slightly supercilious with you. This is sort of before I was able to pay for a meal in a restaurant myself, but not that long before I was able to pay for a restaurant, mm-hmm. for, for food in a restaurant for myself. Outside London, eating was quite bad. I was talking to, so we have a mutual friend, Emma, Uh, Emma bleep I don't know bleep it out Theo and she told me that her brother hiked part of the Appalachian Trail so he would mail himself little bottles of olive oil because apparently like the calories to weight ratio of olive oil is by far the best so he would mail himself little bottles of olive oil and would like just like take swigs whenever he was there because it tasted so good but yeah you can apparently survive if you're doing the Appalachian Trail this guy was like the most efficient way to do it is to just bring a jug of olive oil and like a little bit of protein powder or whatever and then just glug the Mm. oil (laughs) so here's an idea do you think they've ever thought of uh enjoying their lives 
instead. <laughs> it's a very empty existence, walking along the Appalachian Trail with a carafe of good olive oil in one hand and then a protein bar in the other hand, just lightly nibbling and then taking a swig. As you go. I don't think I'd enjoy that. I mean, why hike the Appalachian Trail? It's going to be like that, you know. Push a dessert trolley in front of you as yeah. you go and you've got all sorts to work yeah. on. And just take your time. Just take your time. Stop and smell the roses and eat something that's not olive oil. Emma said that he tried it and he said like, oh yeah, it didn't affect my digestion at all. And I'm thinking there is no way that that's true. There's no way. <laughs> you can't, your no body, way. your intestines can't <laughs> absorb that much fat after a time. You're not absorbing the nutrients. Wouldn't you just sweat it out of your pores? Wouldn't you just slowly but surely become a kind of Michelin man? Yeah, but you'd smell yeah. amazing. Oh, oh wow. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you can just like wipe your face and lick your hand afterwards. And oh. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just olive oil. Like the still suits. <laughs> yeah, still suit with olive oil. That's good. I did though discover recently I made a salad dressing just a very simple one with olive oil, white uh, white wine vinegar, a little bit of salt and pepper. We'll post the recipe on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But first I want to tell a long story before we get to that part on the Instagram post, you know. Oh, okay. Um, no, but I made that and then I had some leftover, so I poured it on my mashed potatoes and it was amazing. Olive oil and vinegar on potatoes. Oh my God, so good. <laughs> Cooking tips with Jackie. <laughs> yeah. Just try, don't knock it till you try it. It's so good. I've had olive oil with potatoes before in various but dishes. you need to add the white wine vinegar. It's salad. It, just trust me. <laughs> okay. Why is Theo laughing so hard? It's just a weird <laughs> recipe. <laughs> I, well, it was it was not something I planned. I just thought, well, I have too much of this. Spark of inspiration. Potatoes are kind of dry, so yeah. <laughs> to me, it sounds like one of the things I would do and then not want to tell anyone about because I'm- Because you're ashamed. Yeah, I, I have food anxiety. I'm not ashamed. Yeah. I'm very proud. It, it had a great outcome. No, no, no. Theo would be ashamed. Theo is ashamed. It could have gone one of two ways though couldn't it like it, if it had been a disaster we wouldn't be hearing about it now you know exactly. if, if that was bad that would have been buried you know you'd have buried that potato at the end of the yard you know but it, it works and so it's time for the world to know it would have been in an unmarked grave because again we can't let anyone know about it but i mean i have served theo very weird food before one time he visited me at my dorm in college and i uh you know being a college kid didn't have any money or any food and oh, it was no. a summer semester so it's between the two semesters where you get financial aid so i was living off of ramen, which wasn't even my ramen. It was something like another friend had left behind. But I served Theo a pot of instant mashed potatoes with a single block of cheddar in the middle of it. It was good. <laughs> it wasn't even melted. It was just cheddar in a potatoes. This is how the British ate until the 1980s yeah. and 90s, I think. Yeah, it was just pretty much an instant mashed potato. It was widely advertised on television by robots. Yeah. <laughs> the food yeah. of the future. <laughs> Dehydrated <laughs> potatoes. It's like astronaut ice cream. But. Genuinely, yeah. It was robots. They just used to laugh. The robots would laugh a lot while eating instant mashed potato. It was called Smash. The robots could eat? <laughs> yeah, they liked it. <laughs> Listen, you're going to have to go on YouTube and look at it. It was called Smash instant mashed potato. And the robots, they were they were very good. Like British advertising of the 1970s was very inventive. What was the purpose of that? Like something that can't taste loves these. I guess that's why Theo liked what I served him too, because he also can't taste very well, apparently. Maybe you were supposed to assume they were robots designed to taste things. Well, I don't ever remember watching them kind of chewing the potato. All I know is they loved to prepare it. But it was a world of, <laughs> of food that wasn't particularly good tasting. So wow. in order to compensate for that, you know, so business could profit. And that meant that you know, advertising had to be very, very good in the 1970s because the products were generally very, very poor in the UK. These look awesome. You'd be eating it robots. and you'd be thinking about the robots and that's and how laughing. you would enjoy it. You would yeah, laugh exactly. too <laughs> along yeah, with yeah, them. Laughing, you'd be laughing. laughing like crazy, yeah. 
Yeah, it's good though, Theo, isn't it? It's Theo's. Have you have you seen the robots now? I'm looking at them now. They're awesome. They look kind of like frogs. Oh. British advertising in the 1970s is such a treasure trove for a creative person because it was so brilliant and so inventive. I've seen these robots before. There you go, you see. They've seen you too. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so did you try to guess what would happen? Yes, I did try to guess what would happen. I I was, no, I was flummoxed. Despite the fact of having, as I say, read this book previously, obviously a long time ago, I couldn't remember the whole thing. With I couldn't remember how the all the falling over of the stuff and the blood, so much blood, the <laughs> peg with the bit of rubber on it, that had completely vanished from my recollection. So what, I knew that there'd been some chaos and I knew that the scream wasn't a human scream. Obviously it wasn't, it couldn't be a human scream, the scream of a soul in hell. It, it had to be something else. And there couldn't have been a struggle. No, because he's he's too feeble, Simeon Lee. He's, a, he's got a red dot on each cheek, which is a very period-specific way of describing somebody who isn't particularly very healthy. It <laughs> shows up in lots of books from around the era, like Danny Champion of the World by Roald Dahl and things like that. People who, people who aren't very well, it's a red dot on each cheek. You know, that's kind of a, a little bit like being marked for death. With Hercule Poirot's Christmas, I kind of felt bad for Agatha Christie having so much of the story hinge on the visuals of the characters. If it's a movie, you know, you can be subtle about it. You're not directly saying, here are the salient features of each person. So someone's watching it, and then at the end, when, you know, Poirot holds up the fake mustache or whatever and says, look, you're exactly the same, you can kind of realize it then in a flash. But in the book, like you were saying, she just keeps bringing up these noses. And I don't know if it's possible for a writer to hint at an important clue in appearance without making it that obvious. You said you felt bad for her? Maybe, I mean, it was her choice. (laughs) (laughs) It was her choice. They should have had a scene where Mr. Lee, like, nicks his finger or something, and then nothing comes out, and then they're like... (laughs) No blood in (laughs) the sky. Wait, where did all that blood? (laughs) Yeah, it's a bit heavy-handed at points, isn't it? There's, a, there's definitely you definitely feel the uh, the giant plot hammer driving the nail in just to make sure that this thing's going to stay up. And I think when they all start going on about blood as much as possible, mm-hmm. there's definitely something about the blood here, guys. <laughs> Pay attention to the blood. Yeah. The thing about the blood that really got to me was that they start talking about, as if we're meant to know what it is, sodium citrate. We added some sodium citrate to the blood that really got the blood going. And I did not understand <laughs> yeah. this at all. Do any of you, is this a common thing? So adding sodium citrate to blood you've thrown all over the place and what it does to the blood? Doesn't it just prevent clotting? Is that what it is? I think so. Now that we've read this, I can guess that. But I, if you had asked me before, no idea. I was really puzzling over this. I was like, I'm not going to look this up, I thought. I'm going to just ask. Yeah. I'm going on a podcast with clever people. And they'll know <laughs> yeah. all about sodium citrate. <laughs> and they'll just go, John, we've got this. It's disappointing. It's like it's like <laughs> you've never faked a murder before. <laughs> so naive. It is an anticoagulant. And now I have used sodium citrate in cooking. You can buy it to make really good creamy mac and cheese. Now I'm just imagining a terrifying crossover where they bust open the door to Simeon Lee's room and they're just like, who would have thought the old man to have had so much cheese in him? (laughs) It's horrifying. It's so creamy. It must have been Pilar. Yeah. (laughs) Pilar, that poor girl. So we also, in our episode, we talked so much about how, you know, 
Harry, the cad, was like, I wish I wasn't a mere uncle to this girl. <laughs> and how that was the most absurd thing we've ever heard. <laughs> it's objectively the funniest thing. He's he's so bad, Harry. He's the worst. He doesn't care if she's his niece. Nah. Yeah, if she only wasn't my niece, well, she'd certainly be the one. <laughs> if you did care, you might think that. You wouldn't say it out loud to everyone. Who everyone. Said, hey, I, I know I've never spoken to you before, but I want to fuck my niece. Like, but- come over here. Let me tell you about it. I think to her he was like man i wish you weren't my niece you're so hot yeah <laughs> but there's a modern cultural context for that like trump just going on about his daughter if only she wasn't my daughter and he was like yeah, i right. thought about that straight away i was like oh this is this is a, this is a trait maybe do we know, have any... to call that a cultural thing can't we just think of that as a weird one-off like, well, <laughs> too off yeah all, all i meant is something that's drifted across the cultural horizon in recent times let's hope it never happens again yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> it happened sort of with Simeon lee too because it was like he he was just entranced by her femininity and youth and it's like it's your granddaughter I thought he liked that she had basically said you know if I were a guy I would be you so I thought he was kind of like this is so cool this is what I would be like if I were a creamy Spanish girl yeah yeah I mean he he did but there definitely were parts that I made note of where it talks about like her femininity and her feminine presence and how that was so like well I mean yeah it's weird but I definitely think Harry's the weird one. But the the yeah, thing about that weird. line that amazed us was that there's no spectrum from uncle to lover. So it's not like you're merely an uncle <laughs> or you can go beyond uncle. Those are two railroad tracks that do not ever connect. It's the word mere. If he had said, I wish I wasn't her uncle, I would be like, ew, gross. But saying, I wish I wasn't a mere uncle is where I think <laughs> this guy's mind yeah. is just working in terrible ways. <laughs> I don't have have any tattoos this is relevant i promise but i have always thought that if i did get a tattoo it would be a a quote from the physicist richard Feynman, which was nothing is mere and i just think that's a beautiful quote (laughs) not even uncles (laughs) but now that that word has kind of been ruined for me by (laughs) yeah you could never get that tattoo now yeah every time you look at it you'll you'll remember i'll think oh (laughs) what harry lee said (laughs) <laughs> this moment will pass. Like, don't worry. You'll soon forget old Harry Lee, that bounder, that cat. <laughs> I think he'll be a part of our lives forever. He may be. We had a period where after we did the Odyssey, we just kept talking about Polyphemus for months. We would just bring up Polyphemus <laughs> on every episode. It was the name of the Cyclops. <laughs> so I think Harry might be our new Polyphemus. We just get a new mascot every once in a while, and it's not up to us. We don't have any say in who the mascot is. They just yeah. kind of come into our group consciousness. But <laughs> This was a book full of Harry Lees though because they all looked like him every character looked like <laughs> Harry Lee you have to remember you know it's like sort of variants on a kind of toy you know like it's a different colorway the two eyes on the side of the head and the high bridged nose here's a big one here's a small one okay this one's buff yeah. this one has a mustache yeah exactly this is the cute one the cute one <laughs> they could have set up a, a little sequel where Pilar ends up going with Stephen Farr who is from South Africa but Harry was very relieved to learn that she wasn't really his niece. So he's like, oh, great, I have a chance. Now in the next book, Stephen gets murdered. Was it Harry? I mean... <laughs> oh, that's true. Oh, we could, again, expand that cinematic universe, the Hercule Poirot's Christmas cinematic universe, definitely. Speaking of the Christmas, like, I kind of... I, I wish it was more Christmassy. You're Pilar. <laughs> she wanted a real Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want the burned raisins. What are the burned raisins? Is that a thing? Oh. She keeps talking about how, like, oh, I want a real Christmas with with the with the plum pudding and the burned raisins. I was like, that sounds No, gross. I've <laughs> never heard of the burned raisins. But she's, but she's quite... She's on it all the time 
time about it being a jolly Christmas. She's not really that sad about the murder. She's just like, yeah, the murder's bad, but could we have the good Christmas now? Because that's what I'm here for. But please, where's the raisins? The raisins. <laughs> They're sitting here unburned. Yeah, I, I feel bad, you know, that these things have vanished from English cultural life, the burned raisins. You know, we sort of have, we kind of have plum pudding, but, you know, you used to cook it for like 14 hours, steam it for 14 hours. Now you just buy it mm. at the shops and mm. put it in the microwave for, you know, five minutes and it comes out pretty much as expected. Is that one of those puddings where it's a cake or is it actually pudding? It's a very heavy, rich fruitcake with a lot of booze in it, Ooh. in a sort of dome shape. It's, it's nice. It's, a, ah. it's very, very, very rich. And you would eat it with some cream, ideally. You know, our family would certainly have it with some cream. So you once again, you'd be thinking of pilar while you ate it. <laughs> but yeah, it, they've been tinkered with for the modern palate. They're, they're probably sweeter now than they were as well. If they're good, I might I might make one this year. I'm always looking for weird things to make well, when I'm at my parents' house for the holidays. Well, let me give you a potato and vinegar recipe. <laughs> Gosh. You need to start soaking your fruit now. You've got to get your fruit in your bowl full of brandy. Get it soaking now, your dried fruit. For a month? Yes. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, you are. You want to soak it for about a month. And you just, you know, you don't have to refrigerate it even, I don't think, because of the booze. You just kind of stick it under the bed or whatever. I don't know wherever you've got space. John, you realize we, we trust you, right? You can tell us anything and we're going to think, all right, yeah, that's that guy said this is how you do it. <laughs> hey, guys, this is Jackie. Remember me? We're jumping into the middle of the episode to just remind you that you can go to patreon.com slash canon and sign up for one of our donation tiers. We have a lot of fun stuff there and we love it when you join and you get a shout out. Go ahead and try that and please, please, please leave us a rating and review if you haven't already. We just got another one this week and we all texted each other about it and we're so excited and um, thank you to whoever left that review. Thanks. Back to the episode. But who was your favourite wife out of the wives? Because I, I enjoyed, like, trying to imagine how all the wives looked. And it, it kind of made me want to draw them. I didn't. I haven't had time. I haven't been in a place where I could oh, draw them. Oh, that would them, be interesting. But... If you do draw them, let us know, because we'd love to see. Because but... obviously Magdalene, the racy young wife who's, who's had a previous relationship with some sort of military figure who might have been her father, but probably wasn't. I quite liked her. The gold digger. She was yes. good. <laughs> I liked Hilda the most. Oh, Hilda. She's so down. Isn't she? She really sticks yeah. up for David. Yeah, yeah. I like Tilda yeah, as well. She's so gentle. I like <laughs> that vibe. I I also really liked that everyone's like, oh, so audience. David is the artist son who like ran away after his mother died because he hates his father, and his wife Hilda is described as being kind of plain and stout, yes. but she's like very nice. She has a really good backbone, and she's always like sticking up for David. And she's one of the ones at the end where Poirot's like. Two people have it in them to murder, and Hilda's one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then Alfred's wife, who's the only one that Simeon Lee sort of likes, they have a grudging respect. She's sassy. Lydia, I liked Lydia. <laughs> she speaks her mind. I like all the wives. He really, the lead sons really ran the gamut. They're good characters, aren't they? They're really good characters. I liked all the wives as well. I really I enjoyed them. I don't think Magdalene is supposed to be likable. We can like how she said like up. Likeable exactly. as a character, not as a person. <laughs> as a person, No, no, yeah. she's not a good person, no, but she she's but she she's sort of perfect for the plot. You can absolutely see what role she fills. I really enjoyed her. And then thinking about the role of George, do we so is Agatha Christie, I don't know anything about her politics, but you know, she clearly wrote George as this kind of like stodgy asshole yeah, yeah. MP. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he is. He's very much a kind of 
conservative politician of that era. He absolutely fits the mould. He's, you know, he's he's a doughty establishment figure. He's not that different to like a lot of the modern conservative politicians in our in our country. So you could recognise him straight away. I don't know what her politics were either, but she doesn't seem to have a particularly high regard for this kind of um, moneyed <laughs> MP, slightly pampered, you know, kind of playing at politics kind of figure. Right. Yeah, clearly if not. I had to guess based solely on the book, yeah, I would guess that she isn't a big fan of his political party. But as far as I know, I don't think she was very open about her politics. But Poirot is one of those detectives like Columbo, where a lot of times the people he's going after are the wealthy. Mm. And the way that she writes them, she often is very harsh. <laughs> it is, but it's easy to write. Like her readership will have been largely drawn from the, the middle mm. and sort of upper working classes. So it's very easy. The easiest direction to point in is up writing <laughs> right. for, the, for the general public. You know, and it and she's very good at it. She's very good at making a sort of demonizing certain aspects of upper class life, which I think well, that's one of the things I love about Agatha Christie is these <laughs> yeah. sort of grand caricatures of um, of the upper classes. Where if you read like the Mitford letters and things like that, they're absolutely real. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know you talked about how your steeple that you're working on now is kind of a commentary on not politics necessarily. It sounds like, but just you know, division really more than anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. Do you feel like? a pressure to address current issues or is it less of a pressure and more of something you want to do or do you try to you know make it just art and not think about it as much I mean where do you kind of fall on that spectrum I think of myself as an entertainer and I think that the need to comment on these things has crept into so many areas of our lives you know on social media you're expected to become a kind of Mm -hmm. commentator on things that ultimately if you weren't participating in social media you probably wouldn't spend more than 10 minutes a day thinking mm. about when you saw them, you know, on the news or, you know, they came across, you know, your your consciousness for a second and you wouldn't think past them, whereas you're meant to have a strong opinion now, mm-hmm. which isn't really compatible with day-to-day existing because everybody's different and everybody is in a different position on the political spectrum just because of our temperament as much as anything else. I try not to be didactic about things because you can prick people in so many different ways that you don't even realise that you're doing and ultimately... I do want people to have a good time mm-hmm. reading my work. I'm not a cultural commentator. I care deeply about these things, but at the same time, I recognise that the role I fulfil in society, I am not an opinion writer. I am somebody who's trying to make people laugh or if they make them think, I'm trying to make them think about the personal rather than the political. So we talked about the, you know, how great the wives are. And I've told friends before, my friend Emma, who we mentioned earlier, she came over and I was saying, oh, this is who our guest is. And I, you know, pulled out some of the comic books I have and I'm like, here, take a look at this. I told her that your female characters are some of my favorites. And there are a few, okay, there are plenty of male writers who I think do a good job writing women. But there are a few where I read a female character and I'm like, I cannot believe this is a man. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, John Allison is one of the two or three that I can think of where I'm like, these are so good. And not only that, but then you have to draw the women. And that's another pitfall that you could easily have fallen into (laughs) something terrifying on. But yeah, right. (laughs) Well, the thing is, uh, in comics, there is absolutely no kind of depiction of women that's anything. It reflects the male gaze at all. You know, it's very much, you know, no. Yeah. Of course, you can get yourself into all sorts of trouble. You can you can step out the front door and trip over in comics pretty fast if you're drawing women. I try to write with empathy. All characters, like not even like you know, villains in in quotes. Mm-hmm. 
I still try to think about why they are the people that they are. And I think if you write from a point of empathy, if you can manage to understand somebody, you can try and write them in a way that's realistic. Where you get into trouble is when you try to write so far outside your frame of reference that you can't communicate the way somebody feels. Mm. The thing was, I went to a, an all-male school from like the age of 11 to 18. I mean, I did meet girls, but not that often until I was kind of a <laughs> late teenager. So I felt so, am I, you know, I'm not like a mega alpha male. So I felt so starved of women's company that when I went to college, I was very keen to meet women, not not from a purely, I was keen to meet babes. <laughs> the world of women had effectively been closed to me mm-hmm. for seven years. And I felt it was an enormous injustice because mm-hmm. the world of men was effectively the world of farts and burping, you know. So, you know, like I wanted to get I wanted to get onto the the rarefied or a slightly more rarefied because I believe women do mm-hmm. fart on their birthday. I believe is when they're allowed to fart and burp on Christmas Day. Or Save it up whole... for one day and then Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's a big day though. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. But but no, honestly, I, I you know, I was I felt so sad. I'm sure that feeds into why I enjoy writing women so much and mm-hmm. you know, trying to sort of understand their experience because when you've lived in a world where it's literally just boys queuing up for class just like barging into each other and just endless <laughs> tedious ribaldry yeah. all day long. <laughs> That's our podcast, Endless Tedious Ribaldry. <laughs> yeah, that's my life, Endless Tedious Ribaldry. But I'm talking, yeah. No, no. Yeah, so I think that's why. I think that's why. It's just a, a desire to understand something that had been denied me for so long that had built up a sort of irresistible desire to not be in that world. <laughs> See, I think that's interesting because you could so easily have gone the opposite way. And I'm sure there are plenty of your schoolmates who are like, yeah, I didn't grow up with women. I don't really get it. You know, I'm just not going to bother with that. Yeah. If you have an impulse to understand people, I guess that's something thing that is a core to who you are as an artist. Yeah, because I think it was there when I was at school as well. Like, I I think I wanted to understand Mm. while I was like 13 and 14, like something had disappeared that was obviously was something that, you know, was very key to what I was interested in at the time. And it was kind of not there. It was kind of absent. Yeah, I was just looking for it wherever I could get it. And so who knows? Who knows? I can cod psychologize about this for a long time, but I don't (laughs) think we'll ever really know the answer. Did you go to a boarding school or it was just... No, it, okay. it was just a, a, a single sex education because there was like a, a boys school and a girls school kind of up the road as sure. well in this town. And you had to kind of take an exam at 11. It wasn't it wasn't a, a fee paying school. You just had to take an exam when you were 11. And if you got over a certain score, you were allowed to go to this. It was kind of like selective education, mm. if you like. Mm. Yeah, almost like, maybe like a magnet school, I guess, would maybe a similar thing in America, you right. know, where they kind of funnel off kids with an aptitude for certain things into uh, mm-hmm. into an educational establishment. Yeah. But no, it wasn't a boarding school. It had been. It had been at one point. It had, had There was like a boarding house. But the last of the boarders was still there. There was about four kind of 18-year-olds, these kind of hulking boarders <laughs> remaining with kind of like long hair. But they vanished after my first year there. And then that was it. That was the end of boarding. I'm curious, what is your process for when you start making a comic? Like, what is the order of operations for that? How does that work? One, got to have some ideas. So like, I like I'll st- I know that sounds stupid, but a lot of people will go, like, well, how do you write from a blank sheet of paper? The answer is you never, ever want to start with a blank sheet of paper. So I have like a bit of a treasure trove of ideas. They're ill-formed, protoplasmic, that's the word. Mm. And I kind of, I dig, I just go 
through them, I'm like, well, what can I make something out of here? Then I kind of work the ideas out on paper. I might draw some little faces and write down a few lines of dialogue. Like if it's a, like a single issue comic, like, you know, like a, a 22 page comic, like a monthly comic, then I make like a breakdown list of all the pages, like a list of one to 22 and a, a few sentences for each one. See what happens on that page. That's all my beats for the story. Mm. And then, and maybe a couple, a line of dialogue. Or I thought something funny to go on the page. And I work out from there. And then I, when I write a script, what I basically do is I basically draw like a bad comic, you know, so I have a, I have a book, you know, like a notebook so I can see the facing pages, like the pages of a comic. Because right. page turns are really important in comics for reveals. You know, visually, if something's on the right-hand side of a page and it's a reveal, you can look from the top left to the bottom right and see your surprise before you've got to the explanation. Mm. So yeah. I make like a bad comic. I write the text on. I do a kind of rough layout of what the page looks like. Mm-hmm. Sorry, does that mean that the surprise should always be in the top left corner? No, I'm going to show you. Hang on. I've got my notebook here. Ah, I realize this is ooh. great, great for the listeners. But the way it works <laughs> effectively. So, so what I've got really, if you can see, it's kind of like a bad version of a comic. You know, it's sort of scribbly, it's, but it's got faces, yeah. all the dialogue and the positions of people. And this will change when I come to draw it, if I'm the person drawing it. Right. And it's, it's given me pretty much everything that I need. And then I can draw from that with confidence that a lot of the thinking has been done you know there's no blank Mm -hmm. the blank sheet of paper stage has been counteracted really early on and so you you never see because it's there's a you're juggling a lot of different creative processes when you're writing a comic as well as the writing and the drawing you know you, mm-hmm. you're trying to harmonize everything it's not one thing or the other so yeah so your surprise effectively should be i mean i guess it would be top top left Ideally, yeah, if you want to, you know, capitalize on the Western reading direction, yes, I suppose so. But like some comics will, like, it's a big surprise, won't they, like, fill basically the entire left page with one frame or something? Yes, I sometimes feel a bit the price that comics cost in 2021 mm. I, I sometimes feel that filling a whole page with one drawing mm. is a little mean to the reader at this point <laughs> it's fine if it's like a kind of nice scholastic you know 200 page graphic right. novel or whatever but I think when it's a 22 page thing and someone's gonna have to wait a month for their next issue <laughs> I feel very very iffy about those big splash pages oh. now I mm. feel like give people a bit more value i grew up with like comic strips you know abundance of panels if you open a book and they're the size of postage stamps you're like now this is a really nice guy (laughs) exactly like these well you know i know how hard those people are working if they're all the size of postage stamps because you've got a thing if there are 25 panels on a page which i have seen that guy's working or lady is working very very hard very very hard indeed they've had to think 25 times about whereas somebody who's just drawn one picture they might have spent an afternoon drawing it but they've only had to think once Mm-hmm. It's not the same. It isn't the same. <laughs> now, something uh, that I like a lot about your series is that they do end in like a pretty reasonable amount, in my opinion. I've been reading comic books like Western and Japanese and everything since I was in mm-hmm. middle school, I guess. There is a series that I started reading in, I think, late middle school and about 10 years ago, I was saying, I can tell this series is almost over. Uh, I kind of Googled and people were like, yeah, it should end. It'll probably end any day now. And I said, I'm going to stop reading it because it's from Japan. So it would take like you'd get a volume a year. I'm like, I can't be waiting this long. So I said, I'll wait till it's done and I'll get back into it. It is still not over. And there is no (laughs) sense that it's nearing the end. Something like that. One piece on Naruto where it's just, it can never end. It's something like that. (laughs) Is that a a profit? thing it's well, like even superhero comics last forever so it's not just like a japanese thing you know plenty of those series end at a reasonable amount but 
This one, it's like 50-something volumes. They all cost $10 a piece. <laughs> it's an investment. A lot of the Japanese ones, are, like, they're appearing like sort of weekly in Shonen Jump or, or the Sinan magazines. And mm-hmm. they're voted for, aren't they? And as long as you continually voted for to continue, unless you decide to end it yourself, you don't have to end it. The right. editorial are never going to tell One Piece to end because, right. it, you know, it's always popular. But I end things because I get tired. Like after five years of something, <laughs> to be honest with you, I think I've been around this garden as many times as I can. You know, I've trimmed, you know, I've got it looking as pretty as I can. And I know that there's definitely a point around around year six or seven where I start to feel like I'm doing not doing this myself anymore right and 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 there's no reason not to come back to things later but I definitely have a sense that I should finish so when I did Giant Days in particular I had a real sense right from the start that it would run for five years which was sort of my optimum length and then it would it would end with a proper ending and even if I did use those characters again it wouldn't be a reiteration of the same setup and the same dynamics and it couldn't just be oh well it's come back because I mean what's worse than something like the Gilmore Girls reboot where it's where it's tired you can see how tired it is and it's like yeah. you know i don't i don't ever want to be in that position of because i've definitely pushed things on for too long because the the fans liked it the readers liked it and mm. i can't do that anymore i have to stop when i'm done yeah i'm curious is it kind of a little bit scary to do that though like thinking okay i'm going to start something new and will i retain the same readers or you know will people like this next thing yeah i'm a coward <laughs> everything that i've done virtually has been extrapolated in some way you know like you see the pilot for the next thing in your work so like people say you've got this like this big universe of comics that are all slightly connected well they're connected because i was too scared to start something completely new each time so i as i was getting towards the end of these cycles i think well there's something here that feels new almost feels separate it was but it was it was natural when these things came out of them they emerged i don't always understand what my subconscious brain is doing creatively Mm -hmm. and sometimes it will be seeding things that i don't even realize until later on are a thing, you know, like at the time, it just seemed like a natural progression. But I'll see like, oh, wait, no, this is actually a little pod. This is a little binary fission that will pop off and be its own thing and survive. And sometimes it's a complete surprise when it does. Mm. Guys, a lot of his series like take place in the same town or they have characters who are from that town. And then sometimes characters from a previous series will kind of pop up and you'll see what they've been up to and then they go somewhere else. I like that. I like that. I didn't realize it came from a place of terror, though. (laughs) I've become more virtuous about this as I've gone on because I don't think a guest appearance can be unearned and and I can't solve a plot point by bringing back a character from the past. That's not allowed. So if a character turns up, it has to be organic and it has to be like a friend from visiting with all the implications of a friend from the past visiting. And any changes that we might experience when somebody from our past turned up, it has to feel like, oh, catching up with someone, maybe it works and maybe it doesn't. Maybe the relationship is different. Mm-hmm. That's what's interesting to me about that. It's not like, oh, you know, the, the town's, you know, going to be consumed by a demon. And then at the end, Gary from my comic from 1987 turns up. <laughs> and Gary just happens to be able to solve this problem. Now, that's an extreme, <laughs> extreme example for effect, but that would be it. That would be the sort of thing. I just can't abide it. And it's sort of that underpin a lot of superhero comics it's like you know Gary shows up just like showing up for fan service and that's it yeah yeah right. I can't well, not with a name like Gary like <laughs> Gary's not gonna solve the demon problem we all know that Gary's a lot more powerful than you'd think <laughs> yeah. Gary he's amazing he just works at like an auto dealership he's yeah. amazing great character I do have one question about the actual drawing so how did you 
kind of come to develop your drawing style? I mean, do you have a choice about what your style is? And this is coming from someone who can't draw. So I don't know. I feel like (laughs) some people can switch between different styles. Is that something that you've noticed or? I'm a a writer who draws to service his writing. I was never a great artist as a kid. I don't think I'm a great artist now. I'm a well-practiced mediocre artist who sort of knows how to get the most out of his characters and which bits. Like, I'm not the most dynamic artist. I'm not the most beautiful artist. I don't have the greatest understanding of colour, but I do know what my characters are thinking. The designs are always quite unique, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I'm interested in, like, fashion. I'm interested in all the things that an illustrator should be interested in in order to kind of broaden their horizons, I think. I work really hard to pay attention to illustrate. And weirdly, I get on better with illustrators than I do with other writers which I always think is interesting like I love talking to other artists and about technique and things like that that's really good fun whereas with other writers writers are cagey because ideas are like <laughs> gold dust whereas drawings are ten a penny you, you sit down you turn your, your brain on and you kind of just start making stuff you know it's a more generous art form if you like mm-hmm. so yeah in terms of my style there were things that I liked but what I, the way I draw doesn't really look like any of the things that I liked. And I couldn't tell you where different things come from anymore because I've been doing it for so long that it's a bit of a gnarled version of myself, really. There's, <laughs> there's too much of me in there at this point and what I know I'm good at and what I know I'm not good at. So, yeah, I, I, I'm not great at switching to other styles as well. I, I find it really hard. Sometimes things will creep in that you don't expect. You'll end up drawing, you know, you just, mm-hmm. over time, you'll start drawing heads slightly too tall or chins <laughs> slightly too long. And it's all muscle memory. And I can't picture anything in my head. It's what's it called? Aphantasia? I can't picture mm-hmm. anything if I close my eyes. If you ask me to draw like the Queen of England, who I've seen, you know, thousands of times, I couldn't draw you a picture of her. I know <laughs> I could draw you an old lady based on how I know lots of different <laughs> ways to draw an old lady, but I couldn't draw the Queen's face without looking at a picture of the Queen's face. So a lot of what I'm doing is sort of the word leg exists in my head and I know lots of different ways to draw that with my hand. Mm. You know, if you said to me, I'll draw someone who looks a bit like Sophia Loren, I'd be like, I can't recreate <laughs> that shape out of my head. I have to I have to it, have a resource. Is that, is that just for people or is it for objects as well? Like if I asked you to draw like the thing that's on the wall behind you without looking at it. Without looking at it? No, I couldn't do it. I couldn't tell you what. Like okay. I just looked up and saw that it's a picture by my friend Kristina Bicinski. <laughs> to Christina Baczynski. If you'd asked me to draw what's in that picture that I've looked at again, that's been up there for five or six years, couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. But I could look at it and copy it, you know, as near as perfectly as mm. I could be bothered to sit there. Yeah. But no, there's nothing, in, there's no images in my head, which is very frustrating at times. <laughs> Do you have a, a thing that you just can't draw no matter how much you try? Like some people just can't draw hands. I imagine it's not hands. That would be a big hamper to you. But <laughs> This is going to sound conceited. No. No, I can, because I can look and I can work out the angles of things. You sort of, you look at something and you can, you look at the angles in relation to each other. And if you've done it enough times, you can do a pretty good impression of whatever's there. Mm. I was hoping it would be like rectangles. So like, yeah, it's yeah. rectangles. Yeah. It's actually pentagons. I just can't, what's, it's the point, where's the point? How many sides yeah. have they got? I can never remember. It always ends up with six sides. I can't figure it out. I just, I know, I'm going to get there one day. I'll remember one day. But no, it's it's funny. Like I, I'm a good copier and a lot of the time I'm copying myself effectively is how it works yeah. I'm, I'm just curious with with a comic like how do you handle the the pacing of it because sometimes when i'm reading a comic i'm thinking about almost like a storyboard for a movie like these are like the the crucial shots that you have to get to but then mm. in a movie of course you would have time in between and everything like that yeah and i'm wondering if that's a difficult thing in comics to work again out. as a writer because i'm writing and because i come from a sort of comic strip tradition i'm always writing in terms of well i can't write they're not always gags because they're not always a gaggy page 
but they're sort of like a poem mm-hmm. and I sort of know what the rhythm has to be and you can't just you can't be on all the time because then if you're on all the time there's no dynamism so you're kind of creating a flow of action of incident and then slow it down speed it up and, and it's it's just like a poem it's like you just find a rhythm right all the way through it and again it's very hard to talk about in, but because I've done thousands and thousands of pages now but I know with the writing there's a rhythm and, and the writing be- as I got better at making comics began to suggest a rhythm to the images as well but again it does sound really waffly when i describe it but yeah the closest thing <laughs> is, is like i used it's yeah. well it, but it was like i used to write like poetry and i used to find setting up different rhythms and stuff for poetry quite easy and i could recreate this other poets rhythms quite easily and i realized that my writing has that same sort you know there's a rhythm to it as well that mm. makes it pleasing in the same way that poetry is pleasing and the images it's the same thing you're looking for a kind of it's up and it's down it's up and it's down you're changing angles you're just trying to create something that's comforting and pleasing to be in but again that's really abstract i don't think i would trust the answer if it was very like oh here's the rule here's how you do it yeah like here it is yeah (laughs) oh i wish there was a rule because i spent years trying to work these things out because there was no way you couldn't look at things pull them apart and say this is how it works right you could copy someone but there was no answer in that it was only through doing it and seeing what people responded to and what i responded to and sort of went oh that seems different that feels new sometimes the best jokes are when you make yourself laugh when you think it up and it's kind of like that surprising yourself and giving yourself that space that feeling is kind of what I'm trying to do in writing and drawing yeah Hmm. yeah I agree I I make myself laugh all the time and Theo and Rachel might not agree but I'm having a great time we agree you're having a great time Yeah. Well, I know you're nearing the end of your battery and I am nearing the end of my ability to stop myself from saying, what happens with Shauna and Charlotte? Tell me their futures. So <laughs> that's probably... Oh, I can, I've done some Charlotte stories. Do you want to know? Do you want to know? Do you really want to know? I want to know. I did the Wicked Things series, which was a sort of Charlotte post-school series, but it was unfortunately mm. the pandemic kind of torpedoed mm. it really. So, and then now the artist has moved on. So that Charlotte is in a bit of a negative zone floating in space in a crystal prison waiting to be released so I can do some more mysteries because I think I've got I've got a board behind my head in my office and there are one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven there are twelve Charlotte stories that I haven't actually drawn or given to anybody else to draw on the board they're not fully written but they're worked out but I mean, yeah, they're sort of, yeah, I I think they're a little bit estranged. It's something I could see myself coming back to, like their friendship mm. years later and, and exploring further. But I have a feeling that sometimes friends who are so close when they're young, once they get older, they, after all these years of finishing each other's sentences, all of a sudden they can't finish each other's sentences anymore. Mm. They've grown apart from each other. And I think I thought that was sort of important to show that that could happen. I'm always trying to reflect reality even through quite cartoony stories. I Mm. like to reflect a a social reality, even if I'm not really reflecting actual reality. I find it interesting to explore those things because it's richer territory than just pretending that we remain the same forever because we don't. And I think it's satisfying for the reader to be able to identify with times in their life where, oh yeah, that happened to me. That was how that friendship played out. That's how that thing went. But it's not always 100% satisfying to readers when I do that I think they kind of want they want the status quo maintained but I can't always maintain it and live with myself mm. well that was a very beautiful thing that you just said do we have to cut it out <laughs> can we keep it no, keep it all in <laughs> like that was so good there are no secrets in okay. there I believe yeah, it's fine <laughs> 
<laughs> wow. I love the parts where we say like, we'll cut this out. Don't worry. And then they say like the most insightful thing. And I'm like, we've Ugh. had a couple guests who give us some juicy <laughs> stuff. <laughs> I know. Oh, there's, yeah, there's, there's not a lot of juice. I haven't oh no, that's, to me. me, that's as juicy as it gets. All right. So I'll take that. As far as you know, they're estranged. Are they on okay terms or just not as close? <laughs> they're on friendly terms, but their interests have diverged. Ah, uh, I got it. I understand. Jackie Theo, right. that'll never happen to us. We'll maintain the same <laughs> friendship forever. We'll do the podcast until we die. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's why we keep repeating the same jokes. You can finish my sentence forever because you know what's at the end. L- like, at the end. <laughs> at the end. <laughs> <laughs> I would really like to thank our guest, John Allison, for coming on. I think that was a really good conversation. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. And I it's a shame you're such an introvert because I feel like I could just like talk at you forever and, and listen forever. You're very good at um, expressing the inner world. So thank you for talking with us. Oh, thank you very much for having me on. I'll come back anytime you want. This was great. Oh, really? Yay. Theo, you better be careful. <laughs> Did we mention to you that if you appear on our podcast, you're contractually obligated to be our friend for life? <laughs> Fine, that, don't, that's understood. Our interests may diverge, but it's a, it's a contractual friendship. Audience, you should definitely check out John Allison's work. We'll put at, we'll at least put a link to your Instagram account in the description of the episode. I highly recommend Giant Days 100%. And uh, I think it's it's quite accessible. You don't have to have read any of the previous stuff to get into it. It's great. It's really, really good. If you like funny characters having adventures and like a really well-written friendship between three people, Jackie and Theo, then I think you'll like it. <laughs> so, all right. Everybody stop. It's time to do a shout out. Hey, everyone. We announced that we had a stretch goal to get three new patrons. One for each of us. For some reason, it's supposed to be a perk that you get to choose which of us you're the patron of. <laughs> and apparently it has worked because I've got a patron now. <laughs> so I'd like to thank my personal patron, Jeff, who Ooh, is Jeff. a friend of my really good friend, Suman, who's also a patron. And Jeff sent us a really nice email about enjoying the podcast. And it was so nice. It was so nice. nice. We really appreciated it. And we really appreciate your patronage, especially me. He's also just said a lot of nice things to us on Twitter, which I haven't even gotten the chance to look at, but they've oh, been popping up on my phone. Yeah, I can't wait to see it. We love it when people love us. I love this guy. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. But anyway... Thank you so much. And if anyone wants to patronize Jackie or Theo, you better hurry up. All right, back to the episode. All right. Thanks, everybody, so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed that as much as we did. Um, our contact information, if you want to get in touch with us, our email is firethecanonpodcast at gmail.com. Our website is firethecanonpod.com. You can go and check out our bios, which is what uh, our guest John said that he did, and he enjoyed those. So if they're good enough for him, they're good enough for you. I'm probably. Um, if you want to check out our Instagram and Twitter, they are at fire the cannon pod. And our Facebook group is fire the cannon podcast. We have um, a discussion group there as well, which we love it when you guys give us your hot takes, your thoughts, your criticisms, your comments, all of that is very enjoyable to us. And we love chatting with you. I hope you'll head over there. And uh, finally, if you do want to throw a few dollars our way, 
couple times a month, not a couple times a month, a couple dollars once a month or $1 a couple times a month, you choose. Um, you can go to patreon.com slash fire the cannon. And we appreciate all of you so much. If you want to check out our guest's Instagram, he is on Instagram at badmachinery, one word, B-A-D-M-A-C-H-I-N-E-R-Y. Awesome. Yeah. And yeah, thanks so much for listening to us. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>